Hello everyone and welcome back to Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. My apologies for taking so long to get the new season underway. I'd like to extend a hello to all the fans in Blackheath and to you and everyone else. Contact me via email at appleas15 at hotmail.com or follow the show on Twitter at AncientWith, capital A, capital W. This inaugural episode of 2021 will be dedicated to alcohol and drugs. Now, alcohol seems to have been a creation of the Neolithic Revolution. For example, the cultivation of grapes in the Caucasus region led to the development of wine. In a similar fashion, beer was developed from the cultivation of grains such as wheat and barley in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Some have even proposed that the social nature of consuming beverages like these was actually part of the development of civilization itself. You may have heard of the site called Gobekli Tepe on the border of Turkey and Syria today, which is currently the oldest known megalithic structure built by human hands. Recently at Gobekli Tepe, archaeologists have found limestone kilns with residue that contains traces of oxalate, a byproduct of beer making, probably to celebrate the fact that they had just moved 10 to 20 ton stones all that distance. Now, when true civilization began in Mesopotamia several thousand years later, beer is celebrated in a religious hymn, the so-called drinking song to Ninkasi, the goddess of beer. In this hymn, beer is said to fill the liver with joy. In another text, it is said of Ninkasi, if she stands by the beer, there is joy. If she sits by the beer, there is gladness. I assume if she did jumping jacks, the beer would taste twice as good. We have representations of containers of beer with long straws and people imbibing the contents. The recipes that survive on cuneiform tablets show that straws were necessary because of unfiltered particulates in the beer mixture. One clay cylinder seal depicts a sexual scene coinciding with the drinking of beer through straws, so the Mesopotamians seem to like to mix up their pleasurable sensory input. In Mesopotamia mythology, even the deities get hammered sometimes. The goddess Inanna challenges her father Enki to a drinking contest, and while he's inebriated, she gets him to hand over the so-called mesh, the decrees that tell people how to create civilization with laws and regulations. He awakens the next day with a terrible hangover and realizes what he has done, but it's too late. Now, among the Greeks... Wine was their beverage of choice. Beer was associated with barbarians, such as Thracians and Celts. Romans seem to have continued a lot of these prejudicial feelings against beer. The historian Dionysius of Halicarnassus calls beer barley rotting in water. And the Roman emperor Valens was mocked by the defenders of the city of Chalcedon, which he was besieging in the 4th century AD. They chanted and called him Sebearios, beer drinker. And the historian Ammianus Marcellinus points out that Valens had what we will call today beer gut from this particular predilection. There is a story in Homer's Odyssey concerning one of Odysseus's sailors named Elpenor. While Odysseus and his crew were on Circe's island, Elpenor became incredibly intoxicated, and he slept off his binge on a roof. He fell while climbing down from the roof and broke his neck, an example of what might be called death by misadventure. Odysseus and the rest of his men didn't know what happened to Elpenor. They simply knew that he had disappeared. They decided to sail off from the island anyway. When Odysseus journeys to the underworld later in the story, he encounters the ghost of Elpenor, 
and he begs Odysseus to return to the island and give his remains the proper funeral rites. Odysseus does sail back to the island so he can fulfill that wish. Herodotus, the Greek historian, describes an interesting custom among the Persians. If they made a decision while they were drunk, they would go back and check the decision when they were sober. And if they made a decision while they were sober, they would get drunk and reconsider. Hippocrates, in his medical writings, speaks of health problems that derive from overindulgence in alcohol. High-ranking Greeks often engaged in drinking parties called symposia, where it was important for the host to mix the water and the wine correctly. I mentioned in an earlier episode about the Spartan king Cleomenes, that there was a rumor that he liked to drink unmixed wine, wine with no water added to dilute it, and that that may have driven him insane. They estimate that wine in ancient Greece was very strong, something like 18% alcohol content. So a host had a large container to mix water and wine in, and it was his job to dole the stuff out to his guests at an even rate and with the correct ratio of wine versus water so that his guests did not get too over the edge. The Greek word for a hangover was krepale. This was rendered into Latin by the incredibly elegant term crapula. Sounds like the worst vampire movie ever. There's two different accounts of the death of the Stoic philosopher Chrysippus from the 3rd century BC. One is that he died from drinking unmixed wine. The other is that he died laughing when he saw a donkey eating figs. Now, I don't think that these stories are necessarily incompatible with each other. He might have been drinking unmixed wine, and this led him to laugh uproariously at a sight that most people would think is pretty everyday, and maybe that killed him. The physician Hippocrates describes a number of cases in his collection known as the epidemics, using the term very differently from how we would use it today. But he mentions individuals who, through overconsumption of alcohol, might experience a sudden loss of speech, which then might lead to convulsions and death. He speaks of a man on the Greek island of Thassos who fell into a fever after heavy drinking. This led to blindness and death. Macedonians, just to the north of the famous Greek city-states like Athens, were known especially for drinking unmixed wine, and Alexander the Great was one of the classic drinkers. Alcohol was a contributing factor in Alexander's murder of a close friend from childhood and companion on his invasion of Persia, Clytus the Black, as he was known. Now, Clytus the Black actually saved Alexander the Great's life, according to the accounts, at the first major battle with the Persians, the Battle of the Granicus River in what is now northwestern Turkey. Alexander had been knocked off his horse. He was stunned. Clytus the Black stepped in at the last second and stopped a Persian officer from killing Alexander the Great. If Alexander had died there at a point so close to the beginning of his expedition, there would not be somebody called Alexander the Great in the history books. But years later, in what is now Uzbekistan, near the town of Marakanda, later known as Samarkand, there was a drinking party where Clytus the Black and Alexander got into an argument. Clytus claimed that Alexander was not the equal of his father, Philip II, and the situation got increasingly heated. Other people in the entourage tried to separate them, tried to get Clytus out of the room. At first they were successful, but then he burst back into the room and issued a further challenge to Alexander, and Alexander grabbed a spear and ran his friend through. He then went to his tent to sulk for several days. The whole thing was attributed to what they called the madness of Dionysus, a god associated with wine and intoxication in Greek mythology. 
Plutarch, an author from the Roman era, cites an interesting Egyptian belief that wine was red because it was the blood of heroes that had spilled onto the ground and soaked into the earth. The intoxicating power of wine was derived from that. Someone with a very similar sounding name to that god was Dionysius I, the Greek tyrant of the city of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, who is said to have died after celebratory overconsumption when his play The Ransom of Hector won a dramatic contest at Athens in the early 4th century BC. The connection between divinities and alcohol is also illustrated by an amusing story from late antiquity. St. Columbanus was an Irish monk who preached to pagan tribes in northern Europe, and according to one account, he visited a group of warriors and nobles who had a container, a keg, so to speak, of beer that they were intending to drink for a festival to the god Wotan. St. Columbanus was attempting to convert them and said that his god was more powerful than Wotan. They laughed at him, and he said, I will prove it to you. I will destroy your keg of beer. And they said, you will not do this. Wotan will guard our beer. But Columbanus supposedly breathed onto the keg, and it exploded. And all of these warriors dropped to their knees and begged to be baptized on the spot. Probably not with the beer. We're going to turn next to drugs, as in drugs that produced an intoxicating effect, although there's less evidence here for what we might think of as recreational drug use. At times, it is also difficult to distinguish recreational use from medical or sacred use of these drugs. And since there were no laws regulating their production, trade, or use, it's hard to find signs of what we might think of as a rebellious subculture connected to any kind of drug use in antiquity. Of course, there are many plants known from around the world with intoxicating or hallucinogenic effects used by ancient cultures. Many people are familiar with plants from the Americas, peyote, San Pedro cactus, ayahuasca, and so forth. There was another such plant used for ritual purposes in India, as well as Persia. In the Vedas, which are the most ancient sacred texts of Indian tradition, it is known as soma. It is believed that this is roughly equivalent to the drug called homa in the texts of Zoroastrianism, an ancient Persian religion. There are theories about the identity of the different plants. The most likely candidate is a plant known as ephedra, harvested in mountainous areas. It would then be pounded and ground up, most likely in a mortar and pestle, mixed with water, and drunk in rituals. The closest possible candidate for something like that in the Greek world may have been the mystery religion centered at the site of Eleusis, just west of Athens dedicated to the goddess Demeter and her daughter Persephone, where initiates drank some kind of a concoction referred to as kikaeon. It's been proposed that kikaeon could have included things like psilocybin mushrooms or amanita muscaria mushrooms. Some have even wondered if ergot, a natural hallucinogenic mold that grows on grains, could have been responsible for this. However, ergot poisoning is very unpleasant. We know of many wealthy, high-class individuals, including Roman emperors later on, who were initiated into this group. So if it was that unpleasant of an experience to join, I don't think it would have ended up being as popular as it was. 
But we do have references to a drug well-known today, cannabis sativa, a tribe from roughly the area of southern Russia, the Ukraine, and the northern part of the Black Sea, today the Scythians are described in that same author I mentioned earlier, Herodotus, as making use of cannabis, although his story is specific to a funeral rite for their chiefs, that it was used for a purification ritual. The ritual involved the use of a large tent made of felt, red-hot stones placed inside, and hemp seeds scattered over the top of the stones, filling the tent with smoke and causing the Scythians inside to shout aloud. Archaeology has provided some corroborating evidence for this practice. There have been some finds in the Altai Mountains of Siberia, including a tomb in Pazirik, where they have found remnants of burnt hemp seeds. Nearby tribe the Thracians had shamans called Kapnabatai, those who walk in smoke, probably also a reference to the use of cannabis. Now, evidence for its use among Greeks and Romans is a lot more sparse, but we do have a statement by Pliny the Elder in his Natural History about the use of cannabis as a painkiller, and also that it came in handy for those who herded livestock, specifically cattle, that it could be fed to cattle to settle their stomachs. I'm a little curious as to how much difference there would be in behavior between stone cattle and sober cattle. Some intoxicating plants would be blended with wine for consumption, possibly to compound the effects or to just make them go down a little bit more easily if they were especially bitter. A plant called Nepenthe, said to be from Egypt, when drunk would make a person forget all of their sorrows. This is described in Homer's Odyssey. Later Roman authors like Pliny the Elder say that it is the plant that we would call borage, which is used in some food and beverages still to this day. Another such plant is commonly called wormwood. This is Artemisia absinthium, the source of ingredients for various liquors such as absinthe today. It's mentioned by Pliny the Elder also as something that was prescribed by doctors to be mixed with wine for various ailments, but he complains that doctors prescribe it far too frequently and that it has an addictive effect on patients. And we have opium. Now, opium and some of these other plants could go much further back than the beginning of agriculture, back to the time of hunters and gatherers of the Paleolithic period. But there are vases that have been found from the Bronze Age from various locations in the Mediterranean, including Cyprus, that are shaped like the opium poppy. According to ancient authors, could be used to relieve pain, but also to induce sleep. However, Pliny the Elder claims that some doctors did their best not to prescribe opium because it could damage eyesight. Given what we know about opium, you would think that that would be a rather minor side effect. Nothing in particular is said about addiction, but there is a reference to a Roman man, Publius Licinius Cacina, who used opium to commit suicide because of his ill health, a form of euthanasia. <laughs> These same medical compendia make reference to some other plants that are quite bizarre in their effects, and they deserve to be mentioned here. Pliny quotes an author named Democritus who mentions a so-called snake plant from the site of Elephantine, southern Egypt in the direction of Ethiopia, that when swallowed would cause people to actually hallucinate snakes, and it would induce such a state of terror that it would lead them to commit suicide. He also states that this plant was used to execute criminals who were guilty of sacrilege. There's also a plant mentioned called Halikakobos that would also create hallucinations, but it allowed people to, as it said, play the prophet, 
to become religious charlatans by putting them into very convincing trances. And we have the Agnus Castus tree. No real connections to intoxication or hallucination, but could produce a drug that was an antidote to the penis-stimulating bites of poisonous spiders. This implies, of course, that unwanted erections from spider bites were a serious health issue. One wouldn't normally think of calling in an arachnologist if you experienced an erection lasting longer than four hours. But in addition to spiders, we can bring bees into this topic also. Bees who produce so-called mad honey. Human beings seem to have always had a taste for something sweet, and based on cave paintings, people were stealing honey from honeycombs as far back as the Paleolithic. Ancients knew that the antiseptic properties of honey were useful for treating wounds and preventing infection. Sometimes corpses were transported in containers filled with honey to prevent decay from setting in too intensively until they reached their point of final burial. The most famous example of that is Alexander the Great. Unfortunately for him, his body was being transported back to Macedonia to be buried next to his father Philip II in the family tomb, but his body was hijacked by a group of soldiers working for one of his former generals, Ptolemy, who brought him to Egypt, where his body was embalmed, mummified in the Egyptian tradition. The stories of mad honey, however, are very different. About honey that could cause illness and insanity. There's one from the writer Xenophon, the early 4th century BC expedition of the 10,000, the Anabasis, where Xenophon helped lead Greek mercenaries back from a disastrous defeat that they had suffered deep within the territory of the Persian Empire. Xenophon describes how he and his men were marching through the area of the Colchians, roughly the northeastern part of modern day Turkey and into Georgia, so this is the southeast corner of the Black Sea. There were many swarms of bees in the area, and his men ate some honey and then became incredibly ill for about three to four days. No one is said to have died from eating the honey, but they experienced vomiting, diarrhea, several of them acted insane. A similar story occurs in the period of the late Roman Republic, where the Roman general Pompey, this is long before he lost his life in civil war against Julius Caesar, was leading Roman soldiers in a war against King Mithridates VI of Pontus. This was in the year 69 BC, and they were marching through the eastern region of Pontus. So this would have been relatively close to where Xenophon and his men were operating several centuries earlier. And a tribe inhabiting that area known as the Heptacomatae, depicted by the Roman historian and geographer Strabo as a quite barbaric tribe that lived in scaffolds and trees, deliberately poisoned the Roman soldiers by leaving bowls filled with this honey on the side of the road, and then attacked them once they were incapacitated, killing over 1,500. And the reason for the honey having this effect is because it was made by the bees from rhododendron flowers containing what are called gryonotoxins. This honey is still available in that part of Turkey today. It is known in Turkish as delibal, literally crazy honey. Thanks to everyone for listening in. It's great to be back. Stay tuned for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. <laughs>